we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods somewhere in County Cork, I investigate stories of the strange, attempting to remain critical but not cynical. This is a special bonus episode featuring myself and occasional co-contributor Chris The Voice Joyce. The reason it is a bonus episode is, of course, because you probably have noticed that my output has not been as intense as it used to be. That's just because of other real-life things. Surprisingly enough, even when you do live in a cabin in the woods, you still have to have a job and you still have to do other things besides podcasting, which is sad, but that is the reality of it. So once in a while, just to fill those gaps as I work on new episodes, and I do have something very, very exciting in the works. There's going to be, um, we have a great guest lined up and we have a great topic. We have some stuff that has been very popular this year that I've kind of held off commenting on, uh, but I know people have been asking about and wanting to know what I think about and all of that is coming up. And we will have some musical stuff as well in, in the next episode, which I haven't done for ages. I used to put a lot of songs in the episodes. If you're a long time listener uh, or if you scroll back far enough, you'll hear there used to be some occasional sort of punk folk acoustic stuff whenever I had a song that tended to fit with the theme of the episode. Haven't done it for ages, but uh, we'll be doing something similar on the next episode. Anyway, until then, you have this episode from The Vault. It is from, of course, that brief period when I had a lot more time and was running a Patreon and I had extra episodes talking about perhaps a slightly wider range of topics than usual. So, being as we've recently enough spoken about Michael Crichton, that of course was our Eaters of the Dead episode, I had another Crichton-related or Crichton-adjacent bit of audio tucked away. People who were on that short-lived Patreon will have heard this, but for everybody else it should be reasonably new. It was something of a follow-up to our old Jurassic Park episode, which was all about sort of the, the ideas about science that are in Crichton's work. And uh, yeah, this was a sort of a follow-up to that. Chris came on the show because he is a big Crichton fan and a big JP fan. And we are talking about the PC game Jurassic Park Trespasser, which uh, was kind of ahead of its time and didn't uh, didn't quite be able to pull through on its promise. And is kind of one of those famous failures in the history of games, but... Not really a gamer myself, that's not why I'm talking about it. I guess we're mostly talking about it because there are a lot of elements of Jurassic Park lore that made their way into this game, and a lot of stuff from the novels in particular. So if you're a fan of the kind of world building of the Jurassic Park novels and the early films, this game came out at a really interesting time and features a lot of stuff that kind of expands on the world of Jurassic Park and The Lost World. So myself and Chris had a lot of fun talking about this and he's exactly the man you want to have on uh, this particular topic. Now as always you can help out yourself if you like the show go over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash white atlantic see I remember the dot com this time and uh, chuck an old 
coffee and all cup of black stuff my way that would be very much appreciated if you want to get in touch and um, tell us what you think about the episodes you can do so over on twitter where we are at strange ireland or on instagram where we are wide atlantic weird podcast so with no more ado uh, i'm going to you know dig my hand into the vaults here pull out an old tape set up the old reel to reel and have a listen So our main episode this week is about Jurassic Park. It's a reread. It's my gigantic monster-sized reread of the original Michael Crichton book. It's almost two hours long. <laughs> and, and this episode, and it, it's a little serious actually, because I ended up finding some fairly dark themes about sort of, sort of anti-science and even anti-environmentalist themes in there, which did trouble me. This episode, I'm hoping to be a little looser, a little sillier. Um, with me to talk about Jurassic Park Trespasser, the game, and the uh, John Hammond memoirs within it is none other than Mr. Chris P. Joyce, who is a JP fan extraordinaire. Isn't that right, Chris? That is indeed. And uh, I, I know we, we kind of said these things for effect at the start. When you kind of start off a podcast, you say things like, Oh, it's a, it's a real honor to be on the cast and things like that. But, it really isn't. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, quite the, the opposite. Seeing what you've done with the, the show over the past uh, year and a half, I can really and truly say it's a, it's an honor to be uh, invited back, um, especially during lockdown. Podcasts are so important, especially podcasts like yours that have kept me sane. Oh, and nice uh, I, I just want to say uh, thank you for all the great episodes in the past year and a half. Well, uh, especially right, during lockdown. Wouldn't feel right talking about JP without you. Can, <laughs> can we start off with that time when I was living in Surrey and you came to visit me? Now, I, I, I thought that in, in my memory, you, you arrived dressed as uh, Dennis Nedry, but it, it was actually Dodson, was it? <laughs> the year was 1983. <laughs> well, no, it was actually uh, 2013. And uh, yeah, I, I, I went to visit you. I'd found some Barbasol in a, a kind of a, a dollar store, or a, I suppose it would be in a pound shop or something like that. So I found some Barbasol. I had my uh, boater <laughs> jacket or my boater hat on, some uh, nice sunglasses, and uh, a kind of a plaid shirt. So uh, I, I, I like to pretend I was a. Uh, kind of Dodson for a, a while and uh, got Dodson around, sorry <laughs> <laughs> looking for uh, John Hammond's uh, uh, maybe sorry hideout wonderful I also have memories of what, what I've got here and um, which you'll have seen in pictures on the socials this week is your old wonderful making of Jurassic Park book from the period <laughs> when the film actually came out which you lent to us many years ago and uh, you know how crappy a lot of these making of books were back in the day when whenever mm -hmm. a blockbuster came out there was always these like tie-in books that were kind of quickly made or quick cheaply made and this one is actually really interesting there's loads of great information about it yeah like, it's, whether, it's whether a fantastic book the special effects history or kind of practical production and there's entire storyboards for it and everything it's brilliant uh, but i remember you telling telling me back in yeah, the day it's great that, it's uh one of my favorite favorite books you can have it back <laughs> after this episode. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah I, I saw you put it up on Instagram this morning. I was like, oh, that's where that was. That looks familiar. <laughs> I also have your Hulk Hogan books. You can you can certainly have those back. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, straight to the, the, the Cork Pro Wrestling uh, library. 
I think uh, <laughs> nearest. So I, uh, I remember you telling me years ago that as a kid, you be, because of the world building in Jurassic Park, which is really good. The fact that um, Isla or Isla, I suppose I should say Isla uh, Sorna or Isla, mm -hmm. Isla Nublar is, is the main park island. Uh, that um, it, the fact that the film and the book specifies that it's off the coast of Costa Rica and th this was enough for you to kind of as a child presume that it was real and uh, go looking for it on the maps I spent hours pouring <laughs> over my 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 mother's atlas um, even when I look at the, the atlas up on my wall today I, well, it has the Arctic Ocean where the North Atlantic should be but um, I, I still look out towards Hawaii and I think I'm sure there's an island out there somewhere <laughs> Hawaii, of course, is where they filmed most of the, the exterior stuff. Yeah, Maui and Kauai, and I, maybe I'm pronouncing those incorrectly, but uh, there you go. So uh, this episode, Chris, I want to talk about a specific element of a JP lore, and that is uh, the Trespasser PC game from 1998. The reason, there's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, it was a hugely anticipated um, game that promised, like, it was supposed to be very ambitious. They were planning it to be this very open world game at a time when that was really unusual. And it was really cool that these kind of technical um, leaps in, in, I'm not a gamer, I'm not a big gamer, I never was, but I do remember this coming out uh, as a kid. And of course, I was a huge JP fan. And the idea that the, the, there would be this leap forward in gaming through the universe of JP was really exciting. Of course, there were all sorts of problems. What they were trying to do proved to be uh, far more than they could do. The game was incredibly disappointing when it came out. But I remember being excited about this and reading about it in the video game magazines. And that's, that's the first thing I want to talk about. And the second thing I want to talk about is that this game does a lot, a lot of really cool additions to the lore of JP. And the writers really went out of their way to mix elements from the book and the film series as it was at the time, which was just... Uh, the first film and, and The Lost World. So it, it really opens out the world of, of JP. It opens out the universe a bit. And I want to talk about that, primarily the audio bits that are in the game, which are the John Hammond memoirs. Sure, sure. Um, I, I mean, uh, you could say that we're actually extracting a piece of uh, original Jurassic Park uh, DNA mm -hmm. from the, uh, the the 90s, much like uh, John Hammond himself did. And uh, maybe we're trying to uh, bring it back to life. And, and certainly uh, part of that DNA is, is quite uh, fruitful. <laughs> Sweet. So do you have any memories of this game like coming out or being hyped before it came out? I, I was never really a games person and I, I have very vague memories of seeing Trespasser or hearing about Jurassic Park Trespasser, but uh, that would have been too early for me to have any, uh, I, I presume it was released on the PC or something like that. Yeah, was it? it was a PC game. I, I distinctly remember reading in game magazines that this was going to be an open world game set on Site B, which is uh, Isla Sorna. Uh, and it was very much written in conjunction with the, the Lost World film. And a lot of the elements of the world building were going to be tied into that. And um, so, I mean, I love The Lost World isn't as good a film as Jurassic Park, but I, I do love the idea of these old industrial buildings that are rotting and being taken over by the jungle. And especially the town and the factory, um, you know, a really evocative setting for, a, you know, a dinosaur story. And all of that was going to be in the game. So the, the plot was that, a little bit like Jurassic Park 3, where like one woman ends up crashing in a plane onto the island and just makes her way around the island. There's no HUD, um, it's, which was kind of a trendy thing to do at the time. 
and they really tried hard to make all these complex physics that you were going to be able to lift boxes and stack things to solve puzzles and the island was going to be populated by Jurassic Park dinosaurs that supposedly had you know sophisticated AI and they would behave you know in some kind of naturalistic way so that they weren't pre-scripted scenes you know most video games at the time you approach an enemy and they have pre-scripted sort of animations and they behave in a predetermined way whereas the, the, the makers tried to make trespassers so that the dinosaurs would have behaviors and that they would be reactive to you so sure. all in all they were they were hoping kind of for too much i think yeah i i was actually looking for a script of john hammond's memoirs and i ended up finding that the actual script the coding of the game and they was just reams and reams of like um you know the different emotions that the dinosaurs might uh, experience um i i was also watching some of the uh, the videos on the history of the game um now it, apparently it was supposed to be quite groundbreaking um Again, a bit like John Hammond, they uh, they they tried uh, to uh, play God, and uh, it kind of backfired, and it didn't really work uh, out for them. An act of sheer will, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, somebody was saying that the uh, the Half Life team, uh, like Half Life, uh, uh, computer game follow up first person shooter. I think everyone's probably familiar with that. They uh, their team actually stated that they were really influenced by some of the technologies in this game. Uh, however, unsuccessful it was. Um, so I I remember seeing adverts at the backs of magazines and things like that, but I didn't really know what it referred to. So I, I took a look at the trailer, um, and I'm in now. I saw I saw more pixels than dinosaurs. I think um, <laughs> it was nineteen ninety eight. <laughs> to, to, to quote uh, Malcolm, uh, you do plan to have dinosaurs on this dinosaur <laughs> video game. But <laughs> Hello? did you Hello? have? <laughs> uh, did you did you take a look at the trailer? Um, I didn't, but I watch I watched a lot of um, gameplay videos of the game, and it 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 was widely regarded as being a kind of a buggy and a glitchy kind of a mess where mm -hmm. the, the physics weren't satisfying or fun to try and deal with. And there seemed to have been far too much emphasis on just like stacking bloody crates all the time. Like, oh, that seemed yeah. <laughs> and there was like the dinosaur AI didn't really work the way it was supposed to. So you would see dinosaurs just walking around in circles or, you know, going upside down or just behaving in ways that didn't make any sense. So by and large, it, I, I was always excited by the idea when I read about it beforehand. And I always, when I was much younger, I would have loved to, to play something like this. And uh, I, I do always have a soft spot for these failed experiments where somebody tries something really ambitious and it doesn't work. I, a huge part of me actually prefers those projects to like, you know, middle of the road, safe, ordinary, we know exactly what we're doing kind of projects. Yeah, somebody called Donald Gennaro about this one. Yeah. <laughs> I think some litigation is is pending. Um, I, I I watched the trailer. I watched a little bit of gameplay. I like it. Did seem quite boring. I didn't really know what was going on. Really, the foley that's used in the trailer as well. It's all, for the most part, I would say actually, uh, zoo animals like lions and <laughs> and things. Now that you get the T Rex uh, roar at the end, but um, really, <laughs> maybe you should take a listen to it. You'll be able to identify all the the various animals. Well, after some, some consideration, I've decided not to endorse this game, <laughs> Mr. Hammond. Um, what, what's sort of interesting, actually, in one of the 
uh, sorry, the opening sequence to the game, there's a picture of um, John Hammond, uh, Richard Attenborough on the uh, Science America uh, magazine. Did you see that part? Oh, it's supposed to be like, it's like a mix between time and like Scientific American. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But th- did you notice one of the bylines on, on the cover? No. It says uh, seven people who are making it big in America from home. <laughs> So That's they're old. talking, yeah. So they're talking about home working already. Uh, oh, very, very, uh, 90, very far seeing there. Nineteen ninety-eight. Yeah, yeah. So one of the cool things, one of the things that is interesting about the game is you are effectively walking around the abandoned site. B, you're walking through the landscape that um, is is on on screen in the Lost World, and 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 you're experiencing the world building. And this game had a rather unprecedented level of engagement with the creative people behind the films. So Spielberg was sort of involved with this from a long distance. He met the programmers and the writers at least once. And um, they, I read a really great interview with the writer of the story and uh, who is a fellow called Grossman, Austin Grossman. Austin. And he's, right. he suspects that Spielberg probably pulled a few strings to actually get um, Attenborough himself to do a lot of voiceovers for this game as well. And to that degree, Grossman and some of the other game makers flew over to uh, London to meet Attenborough and they had him they had access to him for like one day to record a whole bunch of dialogue and this is my favorite part because they went back to the book and they took a lot of lore a lot of DNA if you like yeah and expanded and um, the, the universe of the films using material from the book and if you've listened to the main podcast this week you'll see I I go to town on like finding all that extra stuff because I, I, I find it really interesting and they it just it makes this feel like a, a kind of a legitimate addition to to the lore. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not sure could you really have gotten anyone but Richard Attenborough to do it. It probably would have come across a bit hokey, but maybe it stands to the um, the, the 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 magnitude of of what the game was aiming for that they actually managed to get Richard Attenborough on board. Um, I do notice he kind of goes between Scottish and. Uh, uh, standard English uh, accents, which is a problem uh, I have with the film. A question I have with the film, but is that just how he talks? I mean, uh, is he, I have no idea. Is he, <laughs> I don't know. I presume he is English and not Scottish. Uh, I, I, I would think so. Yeah, I'm I mean, sure some, some Scottish, depending Scottish. on where you're from. If you're if you're from some parts of Edinburgh, you sound very English most of the yeah. time. I, I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know much about the guy. So that that's kind of the most interesting element of the game is the fact that it gives you... It, it, there's the, the quotes that you hear from Hammond as you're walking around the island are supposed to be from a, a book he wrote, a, a memoir, and it's called Jurassic Time, The Memoirs of John Parker Hammond. And vast bits of this were written by, I, I presume, Grossman. And um, they've been put into audio forms. If, if you're not interested in playing the game, because it's, it's actually very difficult to get a hold of and very difficult to get working on, on modern hardware. But if you're interested in the, in, in the memoirs, you can watch them or listen to them in various places online. And I watched them on YouTube through the work of a guy called Derek Davis, which is a funny name <laughs> if you're Irish, because he was a... Uh, Live a tree presenter. 90s game show host in Ireland. Uh, he looks like the... Um, you know, the, the way uh, Brendan Gleeson looks when he's playing Trump. He looks like that. <laughs> so um, <laughs> this, this fellow, Derek Davis, who runs a, a Jurassic Park fan site, um, has, has compiled all the videos with, with like drawings and sketches and music and stuff and put them into a form that you can watch 
and the whole thing is less than an hour long i'd say Maybe 39 minutes. minutes. What, what, what sort of confused me, Kian, and maybe somebody should uh, kind of be aware of this going, going ahead. I think there's actually two separate streams of, 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 the, of the script. There's one of his like general memoirs, which narrates the story. Um, but also, if you look at uh, Austin's uh, actual script, which he uploaded to uh, Jurassic Time, there's also a, a kind of a second part of of him being the tour guide during gameplay. So if you walk up to a gate or something, it says this gate was made by, uh, you know, Puerto Rican workers That's right. or something You can, you like can that. tell chunks of it are him guiding you around the island while you're playing the game. So at, at times, the, the, the memoirs that you, you see on YouTube might seem a little disjointed, but I think in general, they work quite yeah, Quite I mean, well he alternates together. between telling you the history of his own life and the, the birth of InGen and um, him explaining what's going on on the island, presumably yeah. as you walk around. So, uh, yeah, what kind of stuff did you enjoy about this, Chris? Or what did you, like, what kind of extra stuff did it add to the character? By the way, this is absolutely the film version of Hammond, who is like a, a delightful, uh, eccentric uh, British gentleman who wants the children of the world to be happy. And coming out of rereading <laughs> the book where he's like a, like a bit of a money grubbing shit who gets yeah. muppets at the end. It was a bit of a whiplash for me. <laughs> the like the, the the initial part that I really enjoyed was the the fact that it was in, in that sort of kind of hazy eighties era where you're kind of jet setting businessmen around the world making kind of deals here and there. Um, I I, I really uh, enjoyed that part. It kind of uh, feels like a Crichton book. I know you're saying it's it's clearly the film character, but the the world feels like a Crichton world. Uh, I, I think at the start he's meeting Muldoon, Nedry, and Wu in 1982, and he's you know going off doing his various bits and pieces there. Yeah, the timeline matches with with Crichton's book, where the the Jurassic Park incident takes place in about in August 1989. Yeah. Um, one of the parts I really enjoyed, maybe I'm skipping ahead a bit here, but uh, it's when they're um, all <laughs> inside a Nedry's computer lab and it's it's 3am uh, at night and I'm just picturing them like you're locked away in a, uh, the top floor of a tower somewhere and uh, they're, they're running the DNA extraction sequence, he says, for the hundredth time and after that, he just goes on this kind of magical um, d description of, of how he's feeling and how the, the world almost stood still as he, he went back uh, in, in 65,000 million years, as he says. Um, that, that really just captured my imagination. Yeah. I loved it. That bit's lovely. And he's looking at the DNA coding on the screen, the C-A-T-D, over and over again. And he's talking about how it's like looking back in time and... And, and bringing these creatures, you know, making a connection and bringing these things back. And the, there's a lot of emotion in it. And obviously Attenborough was a tremendous actor. And it's it, like the, the, the game makers talk about how they were blown away by the amount of support he gave them. You know, he could have been like, what, video games? Who gives a shit about that? And yeah. instead he was very, very warm and professional and gave it 100%. And you can tell, and just the writing is good and the performance is good. And it just, it feels... It feels legit. It feels like the Hammond that you know from the first movie. Absolutely. There, there, there's some like attention to detail there. And you think that's, that's definitely something Hammond from the movie would have done. I enjoyed some of the stuff as well, where he's talking about his earlier life and he comes down from Scotland and he tries to make it in London as a young fellow. 
and he's got nothing yeah. going for him. So he was not, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't, he makes out as if he is not an upper class guy. He's not a connected guy. He's not coming from money. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, he skips over kind of how he gets rich or powerful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, at that point, you have to, you have to inject the scene from the movie where he talks about the flea circus. And, you know, you, you can assume that he made his way up through the world of sort of being a showman and, you know, maybe working in, I don't know, amusement arcades or, or, or something like that. Sure. What, like what I'm wondering from that era, like he says, I was walking around New York and then it just came to me. Yeah. He cuts what? from like being a bomb in London to like being some kind of presumably <laughs> successful connected guy in New York. There's a bit missing there for sure. But there's then late in the story, yeah. there's, he goes back to being a young man. Um, and I've seen this written, I think Grossman says this happens in the 50s. And he talks about um, being invited to a, some sort of like upper class society event. And he, he mentions like this yeah. is a huge step up for him because he's finally yeah. making his way in the world. He's not, he's not somebody who comes from money. And he talks about like seeing a woman at this dinner and being fixated on her and kind of being rebuffed her eventually and how this has haunted him for his whole life and it's weird it's like there's nothing like that in the film the film doesn't have time for this sort of character development but it feels sure it feels authentic and it's like what would drive a guy like this to spend his whole life you know seeking the impossible and he's driven by this like small minor uh, social or emotional defeat early in his life and it's really interesting therein lies the mystery yeah I think, well, yeah, that was the one he had to pay £200 to attend this gala dinner, which I, right. I presume would have been a, a lot of money in those days, and he, he clearly spared no expense. <laughs> yeah. um, what, 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 what struck me, like, when, when, when he's walking around New York, like, how, how does that thought just pop into your head? Like, I would have thought he, he might have been down in Pan- Panama and got bitten by a mosquito or something but he's walking he says he's walking around manhattan and uh or new york rather and he, it just pops into his head that uh hey why don't we extract uh, dinosaur blood from mosquitoes who were trapped in amber uh 65 million years ago and, and, and at times he goes to pains to explain to you that he's not he's not a scientist he's not the guy who's got the the knowledge to, to make this happen and he, he needs people like Negri to do the to do the science for him but or, or rather Henry Wu and and yes like he's the one who comes up with the idea he's the idea yeah. man. <laughs> he says at one point about Nedry, he's like I'm sure Nedry had a back door something about the hobbits or something oh yeah yeah because oh because he's just like He's a nerd, so therefore he's obviously yeah. into Tolkien. Right? So his, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. his passwords that he uses would be something nerdy and Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it's little details that like that that make this like a really kind of hidden gem. You, you can know, pure tell stranger. as well that there are some bits that are like trying to key into video game dynamics, where he's like, "Of course, I, <laughs> you know, after we left the island and locked up everything, I had a secret code to get back in again." A, a monomic or something like that, yeah. Yeah, he gives you a clue that is clearly something to do with doing a solving a puzzle in a video game to like get through a gate. <laughs> <laughs> so he, um, talks, he talks about finding the island and get going there for the first time, and um, wandering around the island and being in, in, entranced by its like prehistoric. He starts calling the island like prehistoric straight off the bat, even before yeah. there's any dinosaurs on it. It was a coffee plantation, I think he mentioned. Oh, that, yeah, that was interesting. So he said there was 
Yeah, a failed coffee plantation in the mid 19th century and some of the buildings were still there and he used them to start building the town. Yeah, it, like it's great. It always makes me think about world building. It's like all you need is one one line like that and it just immediately sets off um, your own kind of thoughts and it drives your, your head a bit kind of there's a crazy. There's a monorail on the island? Oh yeah, <laughs> I missed that part I think. It's in the game as well. Like, so like the leftover, I think they never finished building it. That's the thing. So mm-hmm. they, you, you can walk through the girders and stuff in the game that were supposed to have been the monorail. And you walk through the town and the, the, the kind of dinosaur factory that they get to at the end of the film and in the book. Um, so, and the, oh, and there's, there's just stuff like really functional stuff. Like he's talking about the docks and how the dock worked and how supplies got to and from the mainland and, I don't know, it just, it makes it feel real. And if you're interested in, you know, the idea of Jurassic Park, and if you're interested in reading the, at least the first book, because it gives you the, an idea of the day-to-day functioning of, of this wonderful place. Um, I, um, I, love, I like, love that stuff. Like the hotel for the, the workers and uh, things like yeah. that. Um, the, the one thing that sort of stuck out like a sore thumb was what he, he was saying that I think they had seven T-Rexes, a uh, bunch of, other animals, albertosaurs. Uh, yeah, albertosaurs. Like, maybe you know a bit more about this as a zoologist, but how could all those dinosaurs live on this one relatively small island, you know? Well, this is a question I had for you, which is, he implies in this memoir that it sounds to me like the animals are just loose on Site B, running around. Yeah. Hey, Whereas I never, I never imagined that. So, like, the original, from from the books and from the films... We, we get the idea that like the visitors see the park, which is Isla Nublar and everything is contained. And then site B is, you know, where the factories are and where they do all the genetic hard work and where they raise the animals to see whether they're, you know, functional. I never imagined that they were just loose though. I, I presumed that the reason they're loose in the lost world is because the facility has been abandoned. And yeah, uh, there, yeah, was, there yeah. was a hurricane or something after the abandonment. I never, it never occurred to me that these animals were just, out there, you know, hunting each other and interacting as yeah, part of the opera. But he makes it sound like that was what they planned. That's the, mm-hmm. that confused me. Yeah, same here. And may- maybe it was because it was during production of The Last World, but uh, I, I presume like the novel would probably hold the key to that. And what Well, they were having read to. The Last World novel uh, two years ago, maybe, they, they don't, I don't think, they don't imply that the animals are loose. I mean, that's crazy. They, they spent so much time and money trying to engineer them and they're all they're so panicky and worried about the animals you know not turning out right or dying that there's it would be a terrible use of money to just let them roam free yeah. and, like what happens when you decide right cool we like the tyrannosaurus let's get him into the park oh shit he's out in the jungle hunting <laughs> gallimimus you know <laughs> eating uh, lawyers on the toilet <laughs> so that that bit didn't work for me what did work for me though was the there's a real kind of tone of sadness and regret throughout the whole thing. It's like an old man looking back at a at a, at a failed project. And this is so different to the, the book because the book is all about, it's like a Frankenstein story where like Hammond was totally wrong to have thought that he, sh- he should try this thing because he was being mm-hmm. hubristic, he was being arrogant. Whereas like Spielberg Hammond is, is like, oh, he just wanted to bring joy to the children of the world, just like Spielberg does himself. And have a coupon day yeah coupon day and that's like the only that's like the only moment in the film where they tip their hat at the actual economics behind this which are like there's no way you could fund a, like this kind of scientific breakthrough without 
you know, being super commercial about it or having commercial goals in mind. But what did you think about, like Hammond is in, 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 in this version is a, he's a, he's an old sad guy wistfully looking back at, you know, what he thought was just this wonderful idea and now it's in ruins. And then he does the poem Ozymandias. Yeah, by, by Percy, <laughs> Percy, Percy Shelley. Shelley. That's, uh, I, I mean, like, I thought I it was it. a nice way to, to, to finish it off. Yeah, absolutely. I, look, I just I just have to bite the bullet and just like film Hammond is different from book Hammond and there's none of that <laughs> cynicism there and I just have to accept that he he legitimately is a good guy who's doing this because he thinks dinosaurs are amazing and he thinks this is going to be brilliant for the world. <laughs> yeah. Um I yeah, I I suppose I, I, I don't think I can read into the the poem a lot more uh, than than that. Um, it's a lovely moment. If you like go and look if you're not bothered watching all of it, look up on YouTube Richard Attenborough doing Ozymandias and it's oh, lovely. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. It wasn't where it was on. Uh, well, I'm um, assuming it's on. The one I watched was like cut up into chunks of like two and a half minutes, so I'm sure you can find that one on its own. Mhm. Um what I was going to ask you Keen actually a lot, I've seen people say this on online a lot. Oh, they're saying, "Oh, it'd be great to make a, a sequel or a prequel out of this." I'm not sure. Is there like while it's great and, and magical and everything, I don't think there's a whole lot there to to actually make a dinosaur <laughs> a prequel out of. Maybe more so, um, uh, you know, a kind of a dramatic uh, early life of 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 John Hammond. But well, um, do you something, think something like a Again, I'm not big into games and my references will probably be kind of dated, but like like open world games like Far Cry and stuff are very common now. And mm-hmm. I, I would totally play a Jurassic Park um, Far Cry type game where you've got this open world island and then maybe it is site B and the animals are roaming free and you're going around the island, you know, amongst the old ruined town and the factories and stuff. And you're finding these documents that chronicle the beginnings of the project. I think that'd be mm-hmm. brilliant. But would you think you could get a movie out of this? Oh, well, I mean, no, because like in terms of plot, it's basically just JP3, which is like you know, <laughs> one person or a small number of people who have no connection to InGen whatsoever, land on the island and run around a bit. And it, like it didn't, do you remember that feeling of disappointment when Jurassic Park 3 came out? Like it, the fact that it doesn't expand the world the way The Lost World did? Yeah. It feels yeah. like a more constrained story. And the reason for that is that they just had no script the whole time they were filming and it, it was a mess and they kind of had to put it together at the last minute. So like Jurassic Park gives you this fascinating universe, the lost world for all its flaws, opens it up a bit more and gives you site B and gives you the, the rival companies. and uh, um, Even Jurassic World does that. With, yeah, uh, you yeah. Know. And, and I've got my problems with Jurassic World, but at least it's it gives you more stuff to play with, gives you a bit more lore. Yeah, absolutely. And Jurassic Park 3 didn't do any of that, really. No, no, not at all. Uh, and, like, I can barely even remember what happens in that. I, I know uh, you have... The only, for years, the only thing I could remember was that stupid scene where Grant has the dream on the airplane with the raptor. Oh, I don't. I, I remember the mobile phone in the oh, in the uh, belly of the Spinosaurus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my but yeah, God. I think I think this could be remade as a game, but maybe not as a film. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Although I, I'd, I'd happily watch, uh, you know, a, a drama on uh, John Hammond in the 1940s as he goes to, um, 
you know, uh, various charity events and uh, maybe he starts a band in New York or something like that. <laughs> it'd be it'd be like young Indiana Jones where like he, <laughs> <laughs> he like boots boots around Europe in the Second World War having adventures, meeting famous celebrities. <laughs> who, who, who would play a, a young, young Richard Indiana Attenborough? A young Richard Attenborough. Uh, I don't know, Chris Pratt. <laughs> Oh dear. Right. <laughs> okay, will we wrap it up with that? Uh yeah, sure, sure. We certainly can. Uh, but um again, thanks for for having me on. This is my this is actually my first podcast appearance in, since uh giving up cigarettes so I'm I'm interested to to see what uh my voice sounds like. Much appreciated, Chris. We'll talk again. Thank you. Okay, thanks again. Bye-bye. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.